Before you start listening to this podcast, we've got a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, which will give you full access to everything on our website. And we'll also throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Women With Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. My guest today is a cookery writer, chef and British bake-off judge, as well as a sometimes spectator contributor. I'm delighted to be joined by Prue Leaf. She grew up in South Africa, but left those shores after convincing her parents to let her study at the University of Paris. It was there that she decided the career she wanted was in the food industry. Since then, she has become a respected name in the sector, from opening her first Michelin restaurant, Leafs, in Notting Hill, to the creation of Leafs School of Food and Wine. She's also a household name, owing in part to her numerous television appearances. This came to a peak in 2017, when she was brought in to replace Mary Berry on Channel 4's The Great British Bake Off. Speaking after the appointment and whether she'd been frightened to step into Berry's shoes, she said... I'd never watched Bake Off, so I had no idea that it mattered so much to so many people. But that was a nice surprise, because I'm quite an egotist, really, and I like being stopped in the supermarket by people wanting selfies and all that. More recently, Leaf, who voted Leave in the EU referendum, has become involved with politics, in a sense, as an advisor for the government review into hospital food following the deaths of six people due to a listeria outbreak. So thank you very much for joining us today, Prue. On this podcast, we like to begin by rewinding the hands of time. You grew up in South Africa. I think I'm correct in saying your father worked for an explosives company and your mother was an actress. Was yours a happy childhood? Very, very happy. I remember I once went on a course to learn how to do script writing, you know, with film. And the guy who gave the course said, if you did not have a happy childhood you could be a good novelist. If you had a happy childhood, you will never be able to write. And I thought, well, that's me out the window, you know, because I had an incredibly happy childhood. And actually, I think it's a load of nonsense because, you know, you can imagine horror and misery and grief and pain without having gone through the whole lot. You attended an English private school in Johannesburg, which was run by Anglican nuns. What was that like? Well, I didn't like it <laughs> at all. Was it strict? Yes, but pettifogging, you know, and um, I loved it when I went through my religious stage when, when I was 12 and on my knees praying for my father because he didn't believe in God. And I was terrified he'd go to hellfire and damnation. But what I, once I got over that and joined him in the atheist club, then I found school a bit tedious. And did you have any early career ambitions uh, when you were a, ch- a child? When I was a child, first, well, first of all, when I was a real child, when I was about eight or nine, I wanted to marry a horse. That was my main ambition. It's unique. Yeah, I thought I had read about an English woman. She'd married a dog because she thought humans were not really very interesting and animals were wonderful. I agreed with this sentiment. And so I thought I'd, be, I'd marry a horse. And then my father pointed out that my, all our children would be centaurs. And I thought, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Even better. However, I grew out of that. And then for a while, um, my ambitions were to teach riding, because at least I could be with horses. And then when I got over that, it was boys for a while, but you can't really make a career out of boys. Serial marrier? Yeah, serial marrier. Yeah, I didn't want to marry, though. <laughs> I just wanted fun. <laughs> and then I... But so then, I mean... 
then I became a, I went to drama school because I thought, as my mother was an actress, I thought, well, I could be an actress. Turned out I couldn't. Um, did she think it would be a good idea if you were an actress? No, she didn't. But lots of other people did. I suppose because she was really very famous and um, and I loved the theatre and I spent a lot of time, you know, backstage when she was in it. And I had been in a production of Hamlet where I played one of the player king's, you know, minions. So I loved the atmosphere of the theatre and I loved the camaraderie and the sort of excitement and the tension all the Turned out I didn't like acting. <laughs> I just liked... Small cats. <laughs> you... Attended university in Cape Town, but you didn't make it through your full degree, did you? I didn't. After the, the great thing about university when I was at it, which was so long ago, it would never apply today. But if you got into a university, you could swap from one degree to another with ease. You just said, I don't want to be an actress, I'll go and be a musician or something. Anyway, so I swapped to do stage design. I thought I would do... So I went to art school for a while. Same university, but the art school. And the head of the art school told me that I had no talent and that I should give it up. And I think that was very good advice. (laughs) You know, nowadays you can never tell children that they should change direction. You have to be encouraging all the time. So all sorts of children think they're wonderful when they're not. Nobody dares say, perhaps you should do something else. But this guy did, and so then I, had a ga- I went to architecture school for one term and realised I could never do the maths. So then I decided to do a BA, and I, for some reason I decided to take logic and metaphysics, and logic I needed maths for too, so I couldn't do that. So I just, I, to be absolutely honest, Katie, I just messed around for my whole fun. two years. There. I had a lot of fun. I spent a lot of time on Clifton Beach, and... It was wonderful, wonderful time, but I can't say I learnt a lot. And then I persuaded my father, who was very long-suffering, I must say, that I needed to go to France, where I would learn French by from French people. I was doing French along with logic and metaphysics, and I complained that the French, the teacher was not French and didn't speak with a good accent. So I didn't think I'd let. Yeah, I was making a good excuse for leaving the country really and it worked partly I mean I would say at least you really tried all your options at yeah. the University of Cape Town yeah you know I feel quite sorry for young people now because everybody asks them from the time they're about 15 what are you going to do when you leave school what are you going to do when you leave university why do they know they haven't had a crack at anything they know nothing about anything and they're expected to have this driving ambition to be a you know brain surgeon or something. yeah and it can be quite hard nowadays to move between mm. courses yeah so your father granted your request. Would you say it sounds perhaps part out of exasperation <laughs> as well as faith in your abilities? I don't know about that. But he he was very encouraging. And he had put up with my elder brother changing his mind a lot about what he wanted to be. So, um, you know, my elder brother had sort of broken him in. <laughs> so anyway, he was very good. And I went to Paris where I was supposed to be studying Baudelaire and um, I did a wonderful course, I don't know if it still exists, called La Civilisation Française. And basically it meant French culture. So you had a wonderful time. You did lots about um, French literature and art and you spent time in the Jeux de Pomme looking at all the Impressionists. It was just the most wonderful um, course. I decided that food was more important really <laughs> because you can't live in Paris for two years without 
getting a bit interested in food. How did Parisian nightlife compare to Cape Town? Well, it was it was remarkable to me because it was so different and so free. I mean, I hadn't realised quite how restrictive apartheid was. Of course, I knew from the politics all about apartheid because my mother was anti-apartheid campaigner. She used to come home with her black coat splodged with egg yolks because she'd be standing on the town hall steps and having supporters of apartheid throwing things at her. But what I hadn't realised is how deep those divisions were because when I got to Paris, first of all, I had never seen so many people of colour on equal footing to white people. You know, it just didn't happen in South Africa. You me and my teenage friends would walk along a street in Johannesburg and venerable old black men would step off the paving stones into the gutter to let a lot of gaggling girls pass just because they were white. And, you know, if you were in a country shop where black people and white people were allowed to shop in the same shop, you went to the front of the queue without thinking I mean, it was, and my nanny had to be in the back of the bus, not in the front of the bus. So it was really, really deep. So it was the freedom of being able to just discover all of, all of that. And, we, you know, on the Boom Mish, they used to eat couscous and sort of Moroccan tagines and things. And it was all new and exciting and wonderful. And clearly it was a culinary experience as, as well as a social one. So at what point from doing that course do you think actually the way I want to, I suppose, earn my living is by going into the food industry? Well, I do remember the moment I thought I'd like to do this was when I was in a sort of dive underground, it was a rather student-y dive, with, um, it had red gingham tablecloths on the table and they were serving cassoulet. And it came in a big pot and they dolloped it out with a ladle and it was just so simple and so delicious and I thought when I have my restaurant I'm going to have unknown painters on the walls who will make their fortune because people come to the what I didn't realize is if you you know if you have a really really cheap restaurant nobody with any money comes to it (laughs) who's going to buy paintings you know I and, and actually when I finally had my restaurant I did have a period when I used to exhibit friends mostly artists paintings because I thought these things should go together art and food but they don't when people are out for dinner they don't want to they hardly look at the pictures when they're in the gallery they might same people might buy that picture but they're not going to buy it when they're having dinner so you never really have a a customer who gets through so many bottles of red wine they picks the picture above their head <laughs> well that would be good <laughs> that would be a way to sell so you, you mentioned the restaurant you opened um you moved back to london you attended the cordon bleu cookery school and before you opened your restaurant i'm writing saying that you in a way were doing catering first first being um high quality lunches to certain businesses did you get a taste early on for demanding clients or i suppose in that at that time that we're talking the 60s what was British food or cuisine typically like? Well, most restaurant food was pretty boring. It was very still driven by Escoffier. The Nouvelle Cuisine hadn't arrived yet, so it was all French or pretend French. And smart hotel restaurants, the smartest food was in hotels, and they were all white tablecloth affairs, very formal and 
a waiter dishing up stuff, butler service, you know, with a spoon and a fork, romp, romp, into, onto your plate. It wasn't particularly good food. And every, in my memory, every one of those hotels had more or less the same menu. Pretty boring. You know, all very traditional, expensive, grand dishes. And I wanted really good food, but more like, in a way, I'd learnt at the Cordon Bleu, which was sort of, in, if you like, country house cooking. Very good ingredients, classic French methods, but simple and a very informal atmosphere. But it, I wanted the restaurant to be smart because at that time, restaurants were either bistros and the waiter was probably drink half your wine and sit on the table with you and, you know, it was all so informal. Or it was this posh places in hotels where they looked down their noses at you if you ordered the house wine or they all came in with a backpack you know god forbid that you should let anybody in with the back you know that sort of attitude so i wanted it to be my, i decided no rules the first thing we're going to have is a restaurant with no rules and when i did finally get to open a restaurant i'd grown up a bit and i realized that gingham tablecloths and cheap food is not the way to make money so i had a rather smarter restaurant but with no rules. So I remember, for example, the Marquis of Bath, as he is now, but then was, you know, whatever he was, lordling in waiting, came in and he was wearing the most wonderful sort of fancy dress with sort of practically bells on his toes, green shoes that turned up and it was just fantastic. And I remember David Bailey wearing just a singlet in a heat wave, one of those string vests that were very fashionable in the 60s, 70s, early 70s. And that was Leaf's your restaurant in, in Notting Hill. Um, mm-hmm. That was a Michelin star restaurant. And I just wonder if... Well, the- not at first. We, we so, honestly, we opened with pretty dreadful food. I'd never run a restaurant. I was foolish enough to think that because I was a good cook, I would be able to have a fantastic restaurant. Of course, I had to hire a chef because I couldn't do that and my catering business at the same time. And we we just weren't very good. I mean, we were be- we got rave reviews and we got a lot of publicity. And I think it was mostly because not many women had, in fact, no women had smart restaurants. Madame Prunier ran her husband's restaurant, Prunier's, in um, St. James. But otherwise, there were a couple of women who had very good little bistros, but... I was the only one who was aspiring to be grander. And um, we had terrific reviews. Humphrey Littleton, he wasn't just a jazz musician. Um, He was a food writer and he used to review restaurants and food. Anyhow, he wrote a, a review of my restaurant which said, and I can almost quote it word for word because it went in like knives. He said, if you are super rich or... You can rob a bank and you go down the seamy end of Portobello Road and risk being mugged to get there. You will find this restaurant. And, and then he said how wonderful it was. So I thought, thanks, Humph. You know, you've just told people that we're in a really dangerous area, that we cost a fortune. I, you know, just, you know, lost me all the customers I might have had. Well, of course, people flocked to the place because they thought it was so exciting that they were breaking new ground. And Anyway, so thanks, Humph. Just briefly on that, I just wondered, for those of us who do not work in the restaurant industry, what is the process like for getting a Michelin star? I mean, do you know that on the day they're coming in, and is it 
very stressful in the kitchen. You don't know when the Michelin star inspector's coming in. And what's more, um, you, you get it completely wrong because you think if a single man comes into the restaurant and has a notebook, this is a tip for single men who want to be treated really well in a restaurant. Go in with a notebook, look very serious, look like Harry Potter with specs and keep writing down everything. And the word will get back to the kitchen that the Michelin man is in. And then suddenly, you know, uh, service will improve. I don't think the food can improve because if you're not a good cook, you can't suddenly become one. <laughs> but anyway, so we uh, we never knew about the inspectors. And uh, to be honest, it took me 25 years or it took us 25 years to get a Michelin star. And in that time, I began to think, this is all nonsense. We are very good. We are packed every night. The customers love us. I know the food's good. I really believe in the chef. We should have a Michelin star. And I thought it was because we were very un-French. We wrote our menus in English. I sold only English cheeses. We had rather out of fashion in a way at the time, a sort of trolleys for the first course, which were like Italian antipasta, lots of different salads and different mousses and things but they were the customers absolutely loved them and they were beautiful and then the same thing for puddings because we had a fixed price so you came along and basically pigged out on the first course then had another course then had a, two more courses and so I thought they don't like this because they like a la carte they like it French they like, and so on one day I got really cross because I opened the Michelin book and there again yet again we did not have a Michelin star so I picked up the phone and I rang Michelin and I said, hey, you know, I want to speak to the editor. And so I did. And to my astonishment, it was a guy called Brown. He was a very famous editor. And he came on the phone. And I was a bit shocked. I said, I want to know why we haven't got a Michelin star, because I think we deserve one. And you know what he said? He said, you know, we've been watching you for years and we agree with you. You are right near, you know, nearly there. But he said, would you like me to come along and tell you what the inspectors have been saying? You know? So I said, yes, of course. He came with his head inspector. I got my um, restaurant manager and head chef and the wine guy. And we all sat around the table. And it was like, this is your life. He opened a big, in those days, it was a book, not an iPad. And he said, well, now, on the 3rd of August... Your bread was absolutely sensational. He said there were three, the inspector said there were three, there was a focaccia, there was a seeded sourdough or something, and there was something else, and they were all warm and they came to the table, they were freshly made, they were brilliant. He said on the, you know, 1st of March or something, there was only the focaccia, it was still very good, but there was only one bread. And he said then in, I can't remember what it was, say let's say in May, there was only one kind of bread and it was bought in baguettes from a factory. They're pre-baked, part-baked, and you have to heat them up. And he said, that's okay for a bistro and if it's properly baked, but these were not properly baked. And anyway, they should have had they had no place in a posh restaurant. And I was sitting there just feeling, I could feel the blush coming up on my face because I was so, you know, mea culpa, absolutely guilty because as he spoke I realized that's when we had that great chef and a baker a very good baker then the baker left and we thought that the chef he could make focaccia but he couldn't make anything else so we just stuck to the focaccia and then he left 
And we, for two or three weeks, we were buying in the bread. So, you know, I thought, you know, guilty as charged. And then he started on the olive oil and he said, you know your lovely tro- trolleys? And I thought, I thought you didn't like trolleys. He said, no, we love your trolleys. We can see that they're original and they're delicious and they're very authentic Italian stuff, you know, and good. He said, but he said, I think you're using the same olive oil for the dressing for all the different salads. And I thought, we are. It's exactly what we are doing. And he said it would be so much nicer if there was a lighter olive oil on the seafood and, a, you know, the big heavy olive oil you're using. It was great for the Mediterranean vegetables. You know, he just, he just was so much more perceptive than I'd been. And so we did exactly what he said. And the next year we got a Michelin star. And the moral of the tale is take the advice. <laughs> Listen to experts. Now let's talk about the Great British Bake Off. I know you've done many things, but clearly it's something which um, is in the news the most. And you joined the programme when it moved to Channel 4. How did that conversation come about? Well, I hadn't thought about it at all. It did sort of flash through my head when I read that Mary Berry was not going to go to Channel 4 with the programme. I thought, oh, that would be a nice gig to get. But it, then it went out of my head because I immediately thought, Channel 4, they're the sort of innovative, slightly cutting-edge end of television. The last thing they will do is replicate the formula of Paul Hollywood with an old lady. be another old lady. And I'm a huge admirer of Mary Berry, and I, I thought, I'm not sure, you know... I, I just dismissed it because I thought Channel 4 will never do that. Anyhow, they did. <laughs> so, do, do they bring you in for like a screen test when you do mm, something like that? Or? I didn't realise I was going to one. I thought I was... They said, come and meet Paul Hollywood and see how the chemistry works. That's the phrase they use. Let's see how the chemistry works. I thought, fair enough. I thought like, we'd have a cup of coffee and chat. And when I got to this house in South London, it was all set up like a proper television studio. There were two home economists cooking who were going to be judged by Paul and me. There was a makeup lady and, and proper clothes and the whole of, as far as I can now remember, most of the Channel 4 bigwigs and all the love production top brass, sort of quite a frightening array of serious television people. And so I suddenly got quite nervous. I hadn't been at all nervous up until then. And so I trailed around after Paul judging these um, brownies and he knew exactly what was right and wrong with brownie, so I sort of nodded and said, yeah, yeah, Paul's right. That was my <laughs> and he said to me, when we broke, he said, more or less, if you want this job, you know, don't just agree with me. Put, even if you repeat what I say, just come in and say something. Don't just agree. <laughs> so I thought, yes, that's good advice. So then I um, did what he told me. Said some um, sentences. <laughs> yes, and, and we then judged some soda bread, and I ploughed in with that. And then we had to, I had to do another one, which was done in his, Paul's house. And they were going to do the... You know, there's a technical challenge where they have one perfect thing, and the bakers are supposed to replicate it, make, make it perfectly. And I thought I'd be really clever, because now my blood is up and I want the job. You know, once you get in there... At first, I'd be all casual about it. Oh, I won't get it anyway. What's the point? And then I really, really wanted it. The more I heard about it, the more I watched, I started watching Paul and Mary on the box. I wanted the job. 
So I thought, right, I'm going to make... A, they, they said to me, what, you, what would you like as a cake for the home economist to make for this technical challenge? And you discuss it with Paul. And I said, Gugelhof, which is a delicious Austrian f- fruited yeast cake. It comes in a bunt tin, you know, one of those sort of looks like a jelly mold tin. So when it comes out, it's like a little castle. So I made one because I said to my husband, you know what, I'm going to turn up with the perfect Gugelhof and they're going to be so impressed that they'll hire me. So I made a Gugelhof and the first one, when I turned it out, I used some recipe off the internet by some very famous Austrian chef who ought to know what he's talking about. And it had so much filling in it that when I turned it out, it just exploded. It was delicious, but it was not a good looking thing. So then I made it again and I was really pleased with it. And so I turned it out and I said to John, come and have a look at this. It looks, smelt lovely, it looked lovely. And he looked all the way around it and he found one bit which had stuck to the edge. You know, like when sugar sticks to the edge of the pan and it was just a bit too brown and it was a tiny little nick in it. And he just looked, he said, never get past Paul Hollywood. (laughs) He obviously watches Bake Off. So I didn't take it. We had a lot of trifle. Um, has it changed your life significantly doing that show? I mentioned in the introduction um, how you said that you, you quite like people stopping you for selfies. Well, yes, I do. I get quite... Uh, um, I mean, I actually think most people like being asked for a selfie. Yeah, I think some people like saying they don't, but yes, still that's like what I think. being I think, asked. Yeah. I think um, it's so flattering. And it's, you know, these are the people who who pay my wages in a way. I feel really grateful for the fact that they watch Bake Off so much because all of that's good for me. But I think I've got just the right level of fame. It's enough to flatter my ego. So if I go in the supermarket, somebody will, you know, I have to be careful what's in my trolley, mind you, in case they get critical, you know. Oh, goodness, she's got a McVitie's something or other. It's not so much that I can't get the shopping done or that I can't walk to a cinema. There do features, I suppose, a few potentially negative aspects to to your role. So, for example, I I think it's been well covered, so I'll touch on it briefly, but there was a time that you accidentally tweeted out (laughs) the the winner of Bake Off. That is one of my worst moments in my life, yes. Were you tempted to to delete Twitter at that point? No, I mean... Certainly, I'm much more nervous about it. I mean, I now do think before I tweet anything. I was really upset because, you know, there was this absolute Twitter storm of people saying that I'd ruined their lives and that, you know... And and I hadn't yet, because it had just happened, I hadn't got to the stage of thinking, I've ruined your life? Get a life, you know, what do you mean? (laughs) I've ruined your life. (laughs) That's a bit strong. Uh, But, I mean, they were presumably in exactly that mood of fury and upset because they just, I just ruined, they were going to watch that night, the final, which they will have got all their mates round and they'll have organised everything and and I've taken the guts out of it. So I um, did feel really badly. (laughs) 
Now, away from mm. baking on television, you're a regular face in terms of other shows you've done. You've appeared on Question I Time did. several times. <laughs> at one point, revealing that you voted to leave in the EU referendum. Uh, you know, but was, yeah, I think away from your own I mean, personal politics, I was interested because one of the things you've been doing is you've been helping the current government and the prime anyway, minister it was with very, their um, review of hospital good food. Because I didn't and want I believe to help as part of this, you got to have breakfast food with I believe quite soon after he had won the election for Matt Hancock to look good, look as announce something and gain some votes and with nothing happening because many people have been asked before to help with hospital food and some of them have made real efforts. I mean, um, Lloyd Grossman assembled a whole band of top chefs and they worked, each of them took a hospital and worked with them about venues and they gave their time for nothing. And they had real results in those individual hospitals. The food got better, customer, patient satisfaction improved and so forth. But then the money went away when the minister changed. And that always happens. So I wanted to know that Matt Hancock was really hanging his hat on reforming the NHS and was serious about it and that Boris Johnson was serious about it. So Matt said, well, you better meet the Prime Minister. So I had breakfast with him in the garden. So just a very few brief questions to end the podcast. So first off, would you describe yourself as a feminist? Yes, I think, yes, certainly. I mean, I... So your of predecessor on the Bake Off, Mary Berry, got into trouble once for. What, I think I think she said she wasn't sure about the ter- the use of the term, term every day, and I got very annoyed on social media. <laughs> in many, in much the way we were previously talking about people getting annoyed on social media. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I I would describe. I mean, I wouldn't personally put it as one of my central characteristics, but I mean, I absolutely believe in in equal rights for women, and I think that we haven't got them yet. And then the final two things were, one thing you've spoken about is how you actually found love later in life, as well as, well as earlier in life. You met your second husband when you were 70. I was just wondering, just because I feel like a lot of the time people just, perhaps it's, it's a media thing, you just never really, you hear a lot about loneliness, but never much about actually... Happiness. That, yeah, and, people, and the fact that people should get it. But um, at, there was one point when you weren't living together, but then you were building a house together. Well, How's the house? The house is not finished yet. Uh, but we are going to live in it together. And we do, um, it's a slight misnomer that we don't live together. The fact is he still has his house and I still have my house because neither of us have had the time or the energy to empty all that clobber and decide, you know, whose books are allowed, whose, you know, furniture's allowed. So we thought if we started again, we would sell both houses and then we'll finally, you know, furnish one house. And it's got, you won't be surprised, the biggest library in the world. It's a, it's a perfectly small house, except for it's an old barn is now an enormous library. So the one thing we get to have is room for both of our books. And then the final thing I'm going to ask you is something we ask everyone who comes on this podcast, which is not what the best advice you've ever been given is, but what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Well, I had a, an aunt who, she was a teetotal. And she advised me never to drink. And I would say my life would have been absolutely boring beyond belief if I hadn't had the odd glass. And you know what? It's six o'clock and it's high time we had one. Thank you, Prue. And while we have you here, if you enjoyed that discussion, why not get a ticket to an upcoming spectator event we have, an evening with Prue Leaf.
Rupert will be talking about her career in food with her niece, pastry chef Peter Leaf, along with her nephew, Sam Leaf. And yes, that's the Spectator's literary editor. And he also has a books podcast, so we want to get another plug on this. To get a ticket for that event, which is going to be held on the 24th of March at the Emmanuel Centre in Westminster, just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash proof. 